We're going to be chatting. This is about a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven uh, FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, and Melanie Lake, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to get you to explain what exactly is the Next Move series. Um, well, Next Move is a platform that Chunky Move has been um, offering for I think the last nine years, and it's where they invite local choreographers or even national local choreographers, I think, um, to create a new work. So with the facilities that they have in the in the space there, and I think it's really about also um, challenging artistic practice and new experiences. So yeah, I'm really happy to be invited. So it's kind of a win-win both for you as a choreographer and for Chunky Move. They get to say, "Look at us. We get kudos for supporting." Uh, younger, up-and-coming, emerging choreographers from around the place. Uh, and then you get access to what exactly? Facilities, space, dancers, brains to bounce off creatively? Also, yeah. And also what I think is really special about this is that you get a whole team of people that help you um, facilitate the things that you like to do, which is really different when you're an independent artist. It's often you do everything yourself. <laughs> yeah. So with this experience, you get um, a whole team of support that helps you with not only technical but also artistic support. So, so Melanie, your work is called Remake and the yeah. other part of the program is Murmur Murmur. Okay. Uh, that sounds like a typically Nicola Gunn kind of t- show title. Uh, Nicola Gunn and Joe Lloyd are the other two guests in the studio and the other half of uh, Chunky Moves Next Move program along with uh, Melanie Lane. So welcome to you both as well. And Joe, it's been a while. It's been too long, Richard. For regular listeners, uh, Joe had has been for quite some time a, a co-host of our Dancing on the Radio segment, but has been on sabbatical for about ooh, six or seven months. It feels mm, like. Yes. Yeah. Off teaching and, as it happens, uh, collaborating with Nicola Gunn. Hello, mm. Nicola. Good morning. So, um, Murmur Murmur, uh, is this something, Joe, that you thought of and then wanted to bring Nicola in on? Or is it something that Nicola thought of and wanted to bring Joe in on? How does, how does this side of things come around? Well, I think um, in 2014 we started working on a piece for Melbourne Now and it was a larger durational piece. And I think um, some practices we started to develop then and ideas and this sort of cross-hatching of our practices um, led to, well, we should keep going with this. And um, then I think... Yeah, we did. We did a, originally it was a seven-hour durational performance at the NGV. And then after that we did a, a couple more performances with the same sort of practice in uh, at Gertrude Contemporary and West Space? Yep, yeah, we are West, West Space. Space. Yeah, so it's just, it's something. And then I think we took that into other works. Yeah, um, and I think then we saw that Next Move was more an EOI this year, which is different to their normal curatorial way of going about things. And so that came up and it was in our minds that maybe we could make a larger work um, with the... Uh, these interests that we'd had of sort of cross-hatching, you know, the different languages of dance and spoken text. Which is something that has been getting interesting results because, Nicola, you've toured a work which I think is actually coming back to Melbourne yeah, next is. year. It is which has, back. again, been a collaboration, that notion mm. of fusing performance mm. uh, m- and movement with performance text. Yeah. Well, what Joe and I, we've, we've actually been working together since 2013. Joe has been sort of 
choreographing quite a few of my works now and the movement is sort of getting uh, the, the movement component is getting larger and larger there was in spite of myself and green screen and then piece for person in ghetto blaster which which is entirely um choreographed so it's a spoken and choreographed work for about 60 minutes and i think that was our first sort of large-scale experiment with talking and dancing and Melanie, you're collaborating in a way on uh, on remake as well because you're working with um, what uh, an ex dancer from the Australian Ballet. Yeah, well, she's still a dancer. St- still a dancer. Yeah, she was with the Australian Ballet for about thirteen years, um, so she's had a long career there, and, and she's just about to embark on a new uh, contract in Antwerp in Belgium with a classical company there as well. So you've worked primarily in the contemporary dance field, I believe, yep, and right. and she's coming from uh, what a classically trained ballet background. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about that collaboration and that fusion of styles, because in some ways, given the the formalities and structures around ballet, I imagine that it could be just as challenging and intriguing a collaboration as contemporary dance and contemporary text performance. Yeah, absolutely. I think what really intrigued me about this collaboration was that. You know, you've got this um, classical trained body and a contemporary trained body, and we both have very different physical histories. Um, And something that was really intriguing about classical ballet is that they have this um, preservation of tradition that's constantly being remade and remade and remade. And I thought that was something to kind of investigate and dissect and kind of understand this very human desire to preserve tradition and how that um, is kind of relevant in our current times and how that can also move into the future um, in a way. So we're kind of looking at how these two worlds converge um, and how these two bodies can actually make a performance together (laughs) in a way. So um, it's a bit of an experiment, but at the same time, I think it kind of speaks about um, also this very human interaction between the two of us. And what are the kind of themes and ideas that are being explored in Murmur Murmur? Well, what's interesting is sometimes, um, you know, in this development, we've had the two studios buzzing, you know, Mel's in one and we're in the other, and every now and then we kind of go, oh, they're exploring melodrama, you know, and, you know, you sort of think there's this weave going on in the building. But um, I think there is, uh, for Nicola and I, this, um, this there's been this sort of premise or notion of spending time and... Um, in in terms of making the work, how you create a work that, um, you know, uh, gives the impression of a very long time spent together, these two people. Mm. I think the work is, it feels ostensibly like we're spending time in entertaining each other, which we're we're attempting to entertain entertain each other. And and that's we spend a lot of time together. (laughs) And that, that, it, it feels like you're just watching us. In, in, in the studio or just hanging out. Does entertaining one another translate to entertaining the audience? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll find out tonight. We'll find out. Yeah, you'll certainly find out tonight. With, you've got the first preview tonight. And yeah, then... I don't think it's entirely self-absorbed. But, uh... but I guess a question, though, for all three of you. How important is it to entertain and engage yourselves with your own work? Um, because surely you want to be you want to be stimulating yourselves and one mm. another when making, mm. um, uh, even if there is a risk of self absorption or yeah. self indulgence. Because if you're not engaged, surely the audience can't be either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's something about also having two people. Like if you just have two people in a space, that's already it sets up this kind of intimate relationship. Where I think, in some ways, it's 
already entertaining to see, especially when you when you come from different worlds. Mm. I think you know there's theatre and and dance in jo- with Joe and Nick, and for me and Juliet, it's, yeah. it's classical and contemporary. And already that meeting point, I think, is something that's interesting to see. Yeah. I guess I think um, new I agree. Experiences. I think it feels like we've set up for each other a series of obstacle courses, and so kind of I think I think what you're watching on stage is perhaps. Um, two groups of people kind of coping and mm. negotiating with mm. each other and and I think then you can feel that vulnerability and fragility I, th- I think is kind of what the words the work the both works speak to mm. and also I imagine you want uh, a sense of negotiation from the audience perspectives as well because you don't want to just lay out and unfold a work that's too simple for them they need to negotiate and engage mm. with it as well yeah I guess um, I'm interested in in the idea that there'll be moments where they, you know, obviously see themselves in what we're experiencing and negotiating live and perhaps, you know, that experience might be a physical empathy or it might be a a sort of brain massage or a moment where they just have some space where they're just sitting and their mind can wander and then afterwards it keeps wandering, you know, the experience goes further than when they leave. (laughs) The works that we're talking about are both being presented as part of Next Move 2016, which is the ninth annual iteration of the Next Move program presented by Chunky Move, running from tonight, so previewing tonight and then opening tomorrow night, and running through until Saturday the 17th of September at the Chunky Move Studios, 111 Sturt Street, South Bank. That's quite a a solid season for these works, because often I see uh, with particularly newer dance works, it seems sometimes it's a blink-and-you-miss-it kind of season, like three nights or four nights mm, or something mm. like that. How much for all of you do you think the works will evolve over that period, given that these are still quite new works and in development? Yeah, I think, I think. I mean, ours particularly will definitely evolve uh, over, the, over the week. I mean, it seems like it's in perpetual flux even, you know, as we do it. Mm. So I just, I think I mean, it'll probably just gradually mm. get longer. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just be making more yeah. material probably live um, as, as the season goes ahead. Yeah. If you want to get along to see uh, Remake and... Am I pronouncing it right, Mememur? Yeah, just yeah. Mememur. I'm just wondering whether there was an emphasis on the second syllable. No. Mememur. Mememur. <laughs> you just let it roll off the lips. Okay. Remake and Mememur presented as part of... What did I say just then? Mememur. Mememur. I'm changing it all the time. See, it is a work in progress. Exactly. It's in flux. Remake and Mememur presented as part of Next Move 2016 by Chunky Move. You can book by going to chunkymove.com or by picking up uh, your telephonic device and calling 9645-5188. And the season, uh, as I said, previewing tonight, so cheaper tickets, opening tomorrow night, running through until Saturday the 17th of September at the Chunky Move Studios, 111 Sturt Street, South Bank. Uh, I've been chatting with Melanie Lane, Joe Lloyd and Nicola Gunn. It's been a pleasure having the three of you in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thank you you so much. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Matt Lutton is the artistic director of the Malthouse Theatre Company and uh, has just recently launched season 2017. Matt, good to have you back in the studio. Thanks for having me. What are the three most important considerations when putting a season together? 
Well, uh, good question. Uh, look, I think it changes for every company. Uh, but for us, we're, we were really thinking about works that um, can offer a really strong provocation. Like, I think it's really important that the shows that we're making have great entertainment, but also at the same time sort of provoke a lot of thinking and debate. Uh, I think we're thinking a lot about how to put Australia on stage and to see ourselves in often in a refractive way. Uh, and also looking at things, I think the third thing was maybe for us about um, how to make sure the stories are engaging with the epic. Well, that's something, you know, an experience that sits outside of what we might have from 10 to 5 each day, but an experience that sits outside of that emotional spectrum. Okay, I'm intrigued and uh, delighted that you didn't say, well, we have to think about subscribers first of all, <laughs> state, key stakeholders uh, uh, and budgetary constraints. So well, They yeah. all come. They're, they're all yeah, part of it as but well. they're Don't further worry. down the yeah. list perhaps. Yeah. Let's talk about that notion of putting Australia on stage because it's something that I guess I'm really conscious of in terms of all of the art forms I, I am privileged to see that often we'll get to see uh, a lot of uh, contemporary work from, I don't know, the, the latest greatest hit from the Edinburgh Fringe or the Edinburgh mm. Festival or the hot new American playwright or the UK playwright. And they may all be of the moment and of our time, mm. but at the same time they're not necessarily uh, reflecting a contemporary Australian concern. Sure, yeah. I think that's... I mean, we're obviously doing work that uh, has international in it as well. But also, I mean, we're re next year there's sort of five new Australian plays in the season and a lot of them are really sort of focusing on uh, something that is specific but often also has a universal idea. Like I think you look at um, some of the work we're doing at the very beginning of the year, so Lachlan Philpott and Wang Chong creating Little Emperors, which is a piece about the one-child policy but also about a connection between sort of, in this story, Melbourne and Beijing and about a whole lot of uh, a family that's been divided because of that um, policy and a lot of Chinese-Australian families. And uh, so that's sort of looking at a story uh, and a part of Melbourne that we, you know, our audience are really keen to see on stage and we want to be telling. Um, but it's also looking at doing things that sort of um, push the buttons a bit further, I think, like in Declan's Green's written a piece, a, a farce, a comedy at the beginning of the year called The Homosexuals or Faggots, um, which is a really smart work in that it uh, looks at the farce and that form of a you know, a, a room with the actors running in and out and this endless mistaken identity but uses that to look at queer identity politics and the ideas in Australia of um, uh, who has the right to be offensive or who or who cannot be offensive. Uh, so he creates a piece that's set during um, uh, preparing to go to Mardi Gras, preparing to go to Carnival in Mardi Gras and uh, the main characters are wearing some highly offendable costumes. <laughs> I'm already intrigued by that one. As soon as I saw it in the program, I was like, yep, yep, I want to see that. Uh, and you've also got an Australian classic in there, Michael Gow's Away. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's a really beloved Australian play um, and what one I think that also uh, has a lot of familiarity with, but when you go back to it, I think you see there's a much, the much darker heart in it. I think um, Michael wrote something that uh, the characters are so uh, recognisable, these three families from the 60s, um, all of them who are essentially wrestling with uh, their children being taken away from them too young. Uh, so it's got, you know, it's a sad story. Um, it's got a heart in it. But it's also got a frame of an Australia that uh, is wrestling with a lot of uh, anxiety about xenophobia, a lot of anxiety about racism, a lot of anxiety about protectionism. So very contemporary Very things. much yeah. Australia still of today. Yeah, and what fascinates me, I guess, about uh, Away, and A, I've never actually seen a live production of it, so I'm really intrigued mm. to, to, to watch it for that reason because it's one of those plays that, 
was when it was first staged in the 80s. It was it seemed to have quite a lot of revivals in the 80s and the 90s. That's right. And now as sometimes happen to classics, they get put in on the shelf or in a glass-framed box or something mm-hmm. and, and admired from a distance and go, oh, that's part of the canon, how lovely. Um, but, yeah, we don't get to see them a lot. But I'm really intrigued because, um, in fact, it was at the Malthouse at the, the National Play Festival where Gao said, I think, that he essentially he was writing an AIDS play, although he wasn't mm-hmm. aware of it at the time because he was writing in the, uh, in the mid to late 80s when the AIDS crisis was at peak and right. death was everywhere. But he's taken that and written about the Vietnam War experience. So to have that, to look back at a period through a modern lens is really what we're doing by, you're doing by remounting this production as well. Absolutely. I think he wrote something that uh, can be interpreted, you know, quite widely. I mean, he did write a story where the specifics of the story is one family that's lost a child due to the Vietnam War and another family who has a child who's uh, uh, suffering from cancer. Um, but it was interesting when it premiered, when it first premiered, that uh, Griffin was at the same time that Tim Congrave from Holding the Man had just put on his verbatim piece uh, at Griffin Theatre, the show before. So there was really a sense of, uh, I think at the time, perhaps in Sydney, it was absolutely read as that Tom's illness in the play being due to cancer was possibly an allegory for AIDS. Mm. Um, and it can be read into that but um, I mean we're looking at a production that doesn't uh, push necessarily that but pushes that idea of how you um, live or how you continue holding that sort of sadness and how you move forward with, with that um, but it's a it's like I said before it's also a play that uh, a lot of people say they might have think they know it but possibly haven't seen or haven't seen a professional production of uh, and being a classic I think we can be as sort of rigorous and robust with it as we would a classic from overseas and I don't think we often see our own Australian canon sort of you know, inventively investigated as much as we like to do that to our American or British peers. Now, speaking of our own Australia, one of the the, the great debates in the Australian theatre sector over the last uh, five or six years has been around the representation of uh, female playwrights and female directors. Mm. Uh, and we're also seeing what I believe to be um, as equally as an important topic, and that is uh, talking about cultural diversity on stage and how we reflect that and that needs to be a conversation that involves playwrights and directors as Mm -hmm. much as uh, colourblind casting and so forth as well. How have you uh, reflected those concerns in your 2017 season? Uh, there's a, you can see that in the programming. You can see it also in our, um, you know, where there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, but you can see some projects that really put, especially in the gender, um, pushing a lot of female artists right to the front. Uh, well, they are the front. Uh, so works next year. We see, like, uh, in Wild Boar, which is Zoe Coombs, Ma, um, Ursula Martinez and Adrian Truscott. Who what a in, lineup! Individually as powerhouses that I think make us all tremble with their wish and talent. Um, but when the three of them came to us wanting to co-create, you know, create a work as a trio, it was an instant sort of that from a programming point of view was a sort of no-brainer um, of artists of that calibre coming together. Um, but also we see a work like Revolt, she said Revolt Again, which is our sort of one of our works by um, an international writer, Alice Birch which is an extraordinary revolutionary feminist piece where she looks at the way language uh, can is a major part of oppression uh, and she looks at a whole lot of uh, domestic situations that are very, very funny and how to, she sort of challenges the situation to invert the language use, used. 
Um, so she takes something that's familiar and radicalizes it really, uh, and it moves into a sort of chaos and a call to arms. Like it's an extraordinary piece. Um, and uh, I think Janice Muller, who's our female director in residence this year, is coming back as a guest director to do that next year. So projects like that, I think, are really, really important. At sort of at the heart of the program. And speaking of heart, heart is a wasteland, mm. uh, which is a, a contemporary Indigenous piece as well. Again, uh, talking about Australian stories, a sense of place. Um, how is it provoke? What kind of uh, provocation does heart is a wasteland offer us? Well, um, the provocation actually sort of came. It almost didn't come from provocation initially, but that the quality of John Harvey's writing that he came. But John Harvey and Margaret Harvey, who are a brother and sister team. Um, uh, this is John's first play and he came and it was the, the love story that he's telling that Aaron Pedersen and Ursula Jovic play was so beautiful and moving and unexpected that I actually realised that I hadn't seen uh, uh, these Indigenous uh, indigenous characters on stage that were pursuing this sort of love and toxic love with such passion. Uh, in some ways the politics of the work are certainly there but they sit underneath this really amazing love story and uh, that felt like a really exciting provocation to put on stage. Now, audiences earlier this year may have seen uh, the production of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which you directed and which Tom Wright adapted. Uh, That was successful and, and amongst other things, uh, gave me one of the most genuinely chilling and terrifying moments I've ever experienced in the theatre. So, thank you, you bastard. Uh, I I think I literally... I didn't jump in my... I I didn't jump out of my seat, but I did jump and I clutched the arm (laughs) of the the friend that I was with, kind of like possibly so hard I made a bruise. Um, But that has clearly been a successful collaboration. So you're collaborating next year on um, uh, uh, a retelling of the story of The Elephant Man. Yes. So this is us looking at um, uh, another familiar story, but in a sort of, uh, in a new way, I guess, um, in that it's the story of Joseph Merrick. So it's the story of The Elephant Man, who we might know from the David Lynch film or the Pomerantz play that's often performed on Broadway and performed around the world. That's the one that Bowie... uh, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is us, but going back to the source material. So we're going back to uh, the the literature that was written by the doctors and, and others at the time that's been the source material for these other adaptions, but going back at it to look again at, I mean, the piece is called The Real and Imagined History of the Elephant Man because I think we've got a lot of uh, information about his life, but it's very external. And, you know, his internal world is sort of one we can only imagine. And I think it's looking at the idea of the body and the way that we... Um, rightly or wrongly, uh, someone that we rightly or wrongly consider as other and how we respond to that. You know, what's the dignity, what's the compassion, what's the the grace we can offer, where's the challenge in that? And I think at a time uh, when we need to be, I think we need to be challenging ourselves on those ideas all the time at the moment. I suspect it's going to be a challenging role uh, for Helpman Award winning actor Mark Leonard Winter, who uh, is playing Merrick in this production. Uh, Can you tell us at this stage... I'm guessing prosthetics are out the window. We're going to imagine the look of the elephant man, uh, which will be embodied by the physicality uh, of the actor. Uh we, we haven't made decisions yet. I mean, that's a really big uh, topic because the idea of representation on stage of what uh, a disability is is a really complex issue. So we're going through a lot of consultation at the moment and talking to people from the sector and community about the ways that we can uh, offer that representation. And I think part of it is absolutely probably going to be in the way that we use language and the way that the audience imagine Joseph. But it's also important that it's an incredibly visceral experience. I think we want to make sure we're capturing... 
uh, the, what the experience of people had when they met Joseph. So I think uh, it will. It's a you know it's a um, it's complex and we don't know yet because we're making the show still. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's not on until August next year. So hey, heaps of time. Um, if you've just tuned in, we're talking to Matt Lutton, the artistic director of Malthouse Theatre Company, about the 2017 season, which has just recently been launched. Uh, one of the things that I'm delighted to see in there is uh, Nicola Gunn, who was on the show earlier, Peace for Person and Ghetto Blasters getting a remount because I missed it originally. So uh, it's coming back. So I'm delighted. Thank you. No worries. Um, and also uh, a production of the the Black Rider, uh, which uh, features original music and lyrics by Tom Waits uh, and text by William S. Burroughs. Why stage this work? Uh, look, it's a pretty much it's a dream team. I think we were looking for a um, a project that could bring Victorian opera and Malthouse theatre together. So we're looking for a sort of really. The last time that happened was a uh, an Alison Crogan libretto. We I think. did. We did the Riders, which was a um, uh, Tim Winton adaption, uh, and before that was Threepenny Opera. So we're sort of going back to the Threepenny Opera sort of mode and looking at something that can allow us to do a big vaudeville sort of spectacle, uh, but at the same time uh, doing something with Malthouse and Vo feels like it's an option to make something quite anarchic, quite messy. And that certainly felt like the world of Tom Waits. So um, it's been a project that I've uh, been trying to get up for several years uh, because I think it's a story that uh, I think Tom Waits' music is incredibly dirty and, and, and extraordinary to hear. Um, it, it brings together an amazing ensemble cast. But also this is a story about devil's bargains, really. It's the story of a hunter that goes into the woods, conjures the devil and gets silver bullets that can hit whatever he wants. So it's, um, it's a story about not seeing the consequences of your actions until it's way too late. Uh, so I think it's an allegory that will speak a lot, um, but at the same time will have a sort of raucous you know, entertainment to it. And I also, just finally to wrap up, we can't talk about every production in detail, but The Testament of Mary, an opportunity to see Pamela Rabe once again take to the Malthouse stage. Yeah, we're really lucky to have Pamela come back, um, but also for a role that is hard to imagine really anyone else doing. Um, she's playing uh, Mary, the Je- you know, Mother's Jesus, uh, <laughs> the Mother of Jesus, um, in uh, a Colm Toyburn piece um, called Testament of Mary, which is another sort of you know provocation for us it's a work where you see Mary in her final years um, being hounded by these young men that you realise are the disciples and they're constructing the story of um, her son and the miracles that he uh, apparently uh, created Um, and she is uh, they're asking for her to endorse the stories and she's saying that they're a lie she's arguing back that they are constructing a myth uh, that they are elaborating and they're confusing reality and dreams. Uh, and, in fact, uh, this man was her son. Uh, so it becomes uh, a mother with her grief and her fighting against fanaticism. So I think it's um, a work that, again, I hope will speak quite loudly. Yeah, that's not on until November next year, so you've got plenty of time to see it. Uh, if you want more information about the Malthouse Theatre Company's 2017 season, malthousetheatre.com.au, or you can pick up a copy of the brochure around town. And uh, don't forget, coming up, there are still three shows left in season 2016, uh, including uh, Gonzo, a collaboration with St Martin's uh, Youth Theatre Company, which I'm really looking forward to checking out as well. But... 
2017 season uh, program out now. Uh, go and feast your eyes on it and start thinking about subscribing because subscribers help keep theatre companies alive and kicking the same way that subscribing to Triple R does. Speaking of which, 93881027 if you want to subscribe to us. Uh, if you want to subscribe to the Malthouse Theatre, uh, jump online and go to, as I said, malthousetheatre.com.au. Uh, Matt Lutton, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, my next guests have joined me in the studio to talk uh, about a play that opened last night at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Carlton. The play is called Oriel, and uh, I'm joined by playwright Merrilee Moss and actor Sarah Hamilton. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and just before we go any further, my traditional disclaimer, whenever we talk about any shows at La Mama, I'm on the La Mama Committee of Management. I do not benefit financially <laughs> from my involvement with the theatre <laughs> and I don't really consider it a conflict of interest uh, that I'm talking about La Mama shows on this year program because, let's face it, it's a powerhouse of independent theatre making in Melbourne and Australia. Disclaimer <laughs> aside, <laughs> lovely to have you both here. Lovely to be here. Now, uh, Merrilee Moss, let's start with you. Uh, Oriel is a play about a playwright. It is. Now, and it's, I have to say, to my shame, not a playwright I was that familiar with. Ariel Gray was, um, uh, her play, The Torrents, shared a, uh, a script prize with Ray Lawler's Summer of the 17th Doll. The doll has gone on to become kind of a cornerstone of the Australian theatrical canon. Ariel Gray and her work has not been. That's right. Why? Yes. Because she was a woman? Uh, well, there's a there are a lot of mixed theories as to why it happened. Um, it could be because she was a woman. It could be because she was an ex-communist at the time. <laughs> it could be because the uh, Elizabethan Theatre Trust had just come in and was providing the first professional theatre venues for the many playwrights that were in existence. There were many women playwrights then that we've forgotten. Um, it could be because she was tra transgressive in her lifestyle. She, um, it, yeah, it, it could be because there was a call for uh, a national identity at the time that the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, w which had just been started, was named after Queen Elizabeth's visit, um, was supposed to help with us find a national identity. And traditionally, that is not a woman. It's a bushman or a digger. Yeah, a and drover or... Or yeah. something like that. Cane and so cutter. it could be that, that, that um, the two cane cutters in Summer of the 17th Doll fitted that more than the young independent girl in the workplace in her play. She also wrote about uh, what are now still contemporary issues like racism, the environment, equity in the workplace, confronting issues for a very conservative time. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, given that the production is about a playwright, I'm going to assume, Sarah, that you're playing the playwright. I am. I'm playing Oriel Gray, which is a great, great pr privilege, actually. Um, I met her family last night, which was incredible. There were a few tears shed <laughs> as I hugged her granddaughters and met one of her sons. It was, yeah, it was really amazing. How challenging is it to play a real person on stage, particularly when it's a person whom you can't necessarily study in the same way that if you're, if you, I don't know, if you're playing Margaret Thatcher, you can watch so much video footage of of, uh, of her online. I'm imagining that those kind of resources to help you embody mannerisms, tone, voice, mm. to help you understand the person aren't necessarily available to such a degree in this instance. Yeah, um... I've done a lot of research and kind of grabbed at whatever I could find. Um, there's a 
actually really amazing interview you can find online which was recorded on verbatim through ABC um, and Oriel talks for about 25 minutes about her career and that's an incredible resource. I think I've listened to it every day for the last month. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've read her, uh, her memoir, um, Exit Left, uh, which is so insightful. So I feel like I have had some really valuable resources. Um, but uh, there is a lot of pressure when you're playing a real person because you really want to um, represent them um, in a in an excellent way. <laughs> um, and because I'm a playwright myself as well, I've found Oriel has been hugely inspirational for me um, and I almost feel like I know her. And that sounds a little bit dorky, but... Yeah. No, I mean, because the essence to me of a good biography, for example, is you finish it and you come away th- feeling like you know the person, like you mm. have an insight into mm. them. So I'm assuming that having an excellent script to, uh, to perform uh, kind of contributes to that. It's such I felt, a gift. <laughs> I felt a similar responsibility to the family. I, in writing the script, I interviewed the adult children of Oriel Grey and, um, you know, and, and I came to feel their sadness about mm. the fact that Oriel Grey's name was always intertwined with Lawless. Mm. And it's nothing to say against the Summer of the Seventeenth Doll, it's a wonderful play, but it is implicit in the sacrifice of this other play, which shared the prize. There were 130 scripts put in for this competition and her script shared the prize. Mm. Yeah. And as a playwright, I also felt incredibly inspired. I felt... I'm a bit, little bit older than Sarah, <laughs> and I felt the, I felt very really sad when I discovered her that I didn't have her when I was starting out as a role model, yeah. and I've tried to put that in the play. Oh, thank you for that gift, Moscas. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of structuring the play, how have you gone about that? Uh, I'm guessing, for example, you've avoided the tri- the traditional narrative form of kind of like let's show a life. In oh, she was born, and then you know, yeah, then, uh, plot beat, plot beat, all those kind of like. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no, that's what I did. No, I did. No, well, I, well, I've sort of um, tried to put my own story in there as well, which is a little bit meta-theatrical, not that I'm the first to do that. Um, so there's a Moss character, um, and she's kind of directing the action. So there are two writers in the play. There's Oriel and there's Moss, and, there, and, and Oriel is writing two plays, the one that was extremely successful in 1950 and The Torrents, and Moss is writing the play you're watching. So they're both, and, and you get little snippets of Oriel's plays in there that she gets up and moves the characters around. And, you know, so it's many-layered. So an opportunity for you to li- quite li- almost literally have a dialogue with Oriel Gray. Well, that's what I was yes. trying to do. Yeah. Where it's got the two, you can tell them about yeah, um, Hannah Monson is playing Moss and she and I have quite a ball on stage um, getting to know each other and arguing and making friends and yeah. <laughs> and also the opportunity for the play to present um, the re- the relatively recent past. I mean, it's not like the 1950s are uh, another world uh, with, with no survivors f- so that, that we only know it through kind of historical reference. It's, it's a, a lived history mm. and it's a chance to, to present that in all its glory. And I mean, Imagining that Oriel Gray's world included um, the Sydney Push, for example, and the the the, the communists, the rat bags, the the near do wells, and the artists of that kind of bohemian Sydney of the past. Absolutely, it, and that's what we <coughs> excuse me. We're trying to represent. I am trying to rep- represent, and, and the cast are doing a great job. Her life before 1955. We don't want. I didn't want to put the saddened stuff, the, the um, sense of disappointment, and so she is a bo- living in this bohemian world where she's got children from several different men she's um yeah so she's living with a man she's not married to she takes her sister's husband 
scandalous. <laughs> you know? and, and she's very, very stroppy. She's in the party, the Communist Party, but she argues with the party. She was a very feisty woman and um, she, she thinks she knows better than Stalin and she thinks she knows better than the party. And, Which and she, she did. And she, leaves the, she has left the party by that stage. She did know better. She mm. was suspicious of their attitude to the war. And, um, mm. But in terms of it being the, the recent past, it's also relevant to the present. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting about... There's an uncanny similarity with Patricia Cornelius, for example, who is also left-wing... A writer who is kind of being overlooked by the... Exactly, because this should have been Oriel Gray's opportunity to get into the main stage, onto the main stage, into the main Mm. stream. And... um, possibly because she's left-wing, transgressive, feisty, which is exactly what Patricia Cornelius is, because she, Patricia, has won more awards than any other playwright, including David Williamson, (laughs) and she still hasn't been on the main stage, not even Do Not Go Gentle, which is the one that's won the most prizes. Mm. Just thought I'd throw that in. Always important to be reminded. So the sacrifice of Oriel Gray, if I can call it sacrifice, um, may have had something to do with the current situation that we have, which excludes we've got an ongoing debate about the space allocated to women playwrights and all minorities. Sarah, it sounds like you've really got a fantastic script to work with. Yeah, it's such a gift um, and I'm just really enjoying being an actor in this play. It's so delightful. Um, we've worked with Kim Durbin, who's directed the play, and all five of us in the cast trained under Kim um, in Ballarat over the years. Um, so it's a real joy to get to work with her to, to bring this beautiful script to life and enjoy being an actor. <laughs> and let's just uh, quickly talk about some of the production elements as well. Mm. Uh, in terms of trying to evoke the period, are, are we going for a, a, a kind of realist look where we create the 1950s look in terms of set and design or uh, are we being more abstract than that? Well, it's got a mixture of both, I think. Um, Sarah might have more to say about this, but there's um, it's a... It represents the metatheatrical thing in that there are writers on stage. Mm. Um, but the, the set is... Abstract. It's certainly not literal. Yeah. But, but the costumes are trying to be of the era. The, the boys... There are three... Sorry, there are... Seven boys? No. <laughs> two. <laughs> there, there are two boys who wear kind of, you know, lovely brace, red braces and hats with red, around, red bands around them. And the costumes are The costumes are of, are of the era mm. and they're lovely. But yeah. the set is quite abstract. So okay. Beautiful. The production is Oriel and it's on at La Mama Courthouse in Carlton. Uh, opened last night. It's running through until the 18th of September. Uh, if you would like to book, you can do so by going to lamama.com.au or by calling it 93476142. Uh, on Wednesdays uh, at 6.30pm, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 4pm. And La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. Tickets are 25 bucks or $15 concession. It sounds like a ripper of a play. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to seeing it myself. Merrily Moss, Sarah Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.